0: Lord, we come into your presence now with a sense of anticipation. We enter this week with a sense of anticipation. And even as I come to preach, Lord, with anticipation of what you will say through me, from your word to the hearts and minds of each one present, Give us that sense of expectancy that you, in fact, are alive, present here, hear our praises, know our needs, respond to our prayers, even as we're asking you, Lord, please to take my lips and speak through them, to take our minds and think through them. To take our wills, stubborn, resistant wills, take our wills, Lord, and reshape them to your own. And take our hearts, jaded, weary, maybe sad, maybe hardened. Lord, whatever our state, By the miracle of your grace, take our hearts and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, as we enter Holy Week, it does remind me that when we began Lent and this series about meeting Jesus face to face, that I said it's a very fast ride to Easter. And now it's here. Palm Sunday gives us that entrance as with the entrance of Jesus to Jerusalem into the Holy Week. With the great events of the Last Supper, I mean, I would love to preach our announcements because those announcements for this week are about what Christ has done for us. Monday, Thursday, When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is a real celebration on that evening of the first, last supper. The evening before he was betrayed and executed. So it's as if we with those disciples and that living drama that we will present... come around the Lord at the Lord's table and draw close to him. When we agonize our way through the three hours, not because it's a a service that creates agony like you're enduring it. Many have said it's the most marvelous service of the year. There used to be a time when people would come and leave and come and leave. People come and stay for three hours now. If you've never experienced it, it's worth taking a day off from work and being here and hearing those last seven statements of Jesus. They're called seven last words, but word in the sense that it's a whole statement. We spend that time with him. And in the light of his hanging from a cross, saying those things, reflect on what he's really saying. Interspersed with the beauty of the music, our responses in singing those great hymns that surround Calvary. Be a part of it. And then the celebration, of course, on Easter. With our first service for Easter on Saturday night, just to get everyone in. And that will be in Wilson Hall. When we join ourselves to the company of those who were rejoicing in the entrance of Jesus, all the details were prepared. The donkey was there, tethered and waiting. Just as in the evening of the Last Supper, the upper room was already booked and prepared for when Jesus met with his disciples. For a Passover, granted... But it's become our great Passover of the crucifixion. And everything from the palms that have been prepared for you, the service sheets put together by the A team, our young mothers, mops, mothers of preschoolers, along with some other ladies, made all those crosses for you this week. Everything's prepared the music rehearsed and prepared we do take care of the details as best we can we are concerned to make the best presentation we can of what we do for the Lord but in this face to face encounter this morning we will encounter the face of Jesus as if we are the people meeting him and we're dealing with the critical attitude and words of the Pharisees. The word Pharisee has come to mean hypocrite, somebody who is all up front, looking good, but behind the scenes, messed up, putrid. Jesus actually described it as a cup that's clean on the outside but on the inside full of filth. Jesus took the same analogy and said of a tomb full of dead men's bones and decay and rot. But the outside whitewashed and looking good of the sepulcher describing what hypocrisy is. And what's hard for me to, and I've been reading my way through the Gospels with my wife this season. Do you know that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the priests, the whole galaxy of spiritual authority vested in that leadership of Israel, kept turning up again and again and again, with a critical, denigrating, belittling spirit toward Jesus. I don't know how he lived through it. I've had people in one congregation or another of which I've pastored actually set their sights, this may dis- made absolutely surprise you, on destroying me or one other of our ministers. There have been times when we've had to call in a lawyer to shut down vicious, wounding lies. Can you imagine that in our Christchurch? I wouldn't know what it would look like. I've been there, I know what that feels like. But Jesus, in his whole three years of ministry, the critics were never absent. They were always there, ready to take him on. And no less in this triumphal entry. I mean, this is a moment of joy. And I always feel about Palm Sunday and the entrance of Jesus, and in fact, Holy Week, I'm a mixture of sheer awesome pleasure at what God has accomplished for us and a deep, deep sadness of what it cost the Lord Jesus to accomplish it. So there's a triumphal arrival at Jerusalem. Jesus riding on the donkey, palm branches being waved, Children running along the side of Jesus. I mean, the icons of this is Jesus sitting somewhat upright with his halo and everybody looking at him. Jesus was engaged in the joy of the moment. He entered into it. So if the little children were running along beside him and sort of reaching up, he would reach down and touch them. That's not in the account. You just use your imagination about that scene. People shouting out to him and he's looking at them and catching their eyes. They're not just shouting out to the air, out to glory. They're adoring Jesus. They're into Jesus. And here's the trouble with hypocrisy and a critical spirit. It's all about the details. And they miss, or we miss... Because what we see in the face of the critics is our own face. It's so easy to be critical of the details. Everything from maybe the music, whether it's too loud, too quiet, to this, to that, whether the preaching's too long, too short, too quiet, too in your face. There are some people, and we've all been raised like this, and this is sad, and it's probably too many of us. The spirit of our age is critical. It's, it's to have a critical spirit. It's even worse in England. If you, achieve in, if you achieve anything in England, they will want to cut you down to size. Here in the USA, it's amazing we have a brilliant country here. Our country is amazing. I drive around saying, America is amazing. Even with the few potholes we've got. It's amazing. The highways, the systems, traffic lights, fast food, hot coffee, America's amazing. You've got padded pews, for goodness sake. Padded kneelers. Air-conditioned in the summer, warm for you in the winter. It just goes on. I was thinking about John Wesley this week riding on horseback. I keep saying, because whether it's cold outside or hot and sweaty and mosquitoes outside... Wesley put up with it all on the back of a horse. As the famous preacher of the 1700s. He rode around from place to place. If it was raining, he got wet. I mean, soaking. He rode on horseback all the way down the east coast. Have you been in Savannah in the summer? He would be down there preaching in his very dressed-up, formal looking attire. Not us. And yet, no matter how good it is, our health care, our education, our political system, what do you hear but constant griping as if the country's a mess and everything's wrong. It's all awry. Do you sense that? And that spills over into our attitudes concerning the Lord and the church and our time together. We end up with that critical spirit like the Pharisees. There were three things really wrong with the Pharisees, just to go to who they were. Number one, they were legalists. They measured faith by the multitude of rules and regulations about how far you could walk on the Sabbath. What work you could do on the Sabbath and what you couldn't. etc. Hundreds of regulations to express what the commandments are and how we're to live. And they were fixated on the rules and regulations. And what did they miss? The Lord himself. Not just the Lord Jesus when he came. Almighty God. Do you know this is a severe statement that God said to these religious leaders in the lips, from the lips of Jesus... Jesus said this If you knew my father you would know me That is if you love my father in heaven all this god stuff that you say you're into if you loved god you would love me And then he said to them you are of your father the devil From the lips of Jesus to the religious elites. You're of your father the devil. But if you looked at them, you would say their religious exercise was absolutely detailed down to the minutest inflection of this, that or the other. But in that worship of the detail and the legalism that legislated their lives... They missed the Lord himself. So all they were left with was an arid, critical spirit because legalism produces that. Truth is, we can't live up to it and we become very, very critical, almost as if transposing our attitudes onto others, we become critical of those others who can't. That was the Pharisee. Secondly, they were overeducated. I love that Dr. John Rogers, the very Reverend Bishop John Rogers, speaking last Wednesday night, said it took him years to get beyond his education, virtually to get it out of his system. Do you know why? Listen to these words from the lips of the Apostle Paul. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up these were the knowledgeable people the Pharisees they were the educated they knew the schools to which they had been that's what surprised them about Jesus he didn't go to any of their schools and yet he took them on and profoundly beat them to intellectual pulp every time and spiritual pulp every time they took him on So they were educated. They knew too much for their own good. It was all about, they become arrogant in it. Arrogant in their knowledge. That was the Pharisee. And thirdly, because they didn't know the Father, because it was all about the details and the rules, and because they were full of themselves and their knowledge, they missed Jesus and opposed him. So here we are in the triumphal entry. And there are these people I've just described in the crowd. And when the crowd starts singing those fantastic words or chanting them and saying them. Calling out that the Lord is here. And how super it is. Blessed is the king. The king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were actually witnessing these Pharisees and the crowds around. The fulfillment of this prophecy to which I've just turned. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Listen to this. Written in about 520 B.C. 6th century B.C. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's amazing how God in the detail prophesies who Jesus is and the chaps and chapesses who were full of the detail missed him. Because their eyes were on the wrong scene. It was really about them, not about the Lord. About who they were, not who the Lord was. Whether God Almighty or the Lord Jesus, his Messiah, his Son, his incarnate presence. So in the faces of the critics, do we see ourselves at all? I know we hate to think we're like them. May the Lord deliver us. I'll tell you what delivered Jesus. You say, How did he handle all that? Because he knew who he was. Let me rephrase that differently He knew the truth both about humanity and about himself. I'll say one further thing. He knew that he must be rejected, that the setup of the human race, as portrayed in the children of Israel and the leadership of Israel, was going to reject him And that as he rode in lowly pomp into Jerusalem, he was riding there to die. There's a brilliant hymn, but I want to recite it to you. Ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. O Christ, thy triumphs now begin or captive death and conquered sin. Ride on, ride on, in majesty, the angel armies of the sky look down with sad and wondering wander, eyes to see the approaching sacrifice. Ride on, ride on, in majesty, thy last and fiercest strife is nigh. The Father on his sapphire throne expects his own anointed son. Ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. Bow thy meek head to mortal pain, then take, O God, thy power and reign. That's our Jesus. He knew That this was his destiny. He kept trying to tell his disciples. Because they they did love him. They were enamored with him. They had committed all to follow him. But he had to tell them that he was going to be rejected by the religious leadership. And that he was going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And that he was going to be executed, crucified, beaten but on the third day would rise he told them but they couldn't get it they didn't want to hear it it didn't fit it wasn't what they were looking for actually there's a lot of rejection of jesus today by the educated and the elites because he's not what they're looking for he comes in humility riding on a donkey He is meek. Jesus knew who he was. But he wasn't proud in the sense that he was full of himself. In the sense that it was all about him. Isn't it remarkable that the very rejectors, symbolized in the look of Jesus as he came down that rough mountain road riding on a donkey, the crowds cheering him on, he looks across the valley, the Kidron Valley, he sees the holy city, the temple which in those days would have been immaculate and glowing white in the sun, and he weeps. Do you know why he's weeping? Not because he's about to die a painful death. His words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem if you only knew what would make for your peace. And he wept. He stopped and wept in the middle of the adulation and the praising crowd. He is looking at Jerusalem weeping. If you actually go to an earlier part of Luke's gospel, a few chapters earlier, Chapter 9, verse 9. Listen to these words. Excuse me, wrong place. Chapter 13, verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you, to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, under her wings, but you were not willing. Same gospel. Very similar scene. Jesus looking at Jerusalem and saying, I'd have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, and you wouldn't. You would not come. Jesus weeps, aches, longs for the very people who reject him and put together systematically his demise and his execution. I remember reading an account of D.L. Moody, the very famous, as famous perhaps as Billy Graham in our generation, but in his own generation, and he preached fiercely. But one man noted and wrote, I can always hear Moody, D.L. Moody, preach hell to me. Because as he does so, he weeps for me. Too many of us who preach hell, preach hellfire and damnation with a fierce anger as if we're God. We are not. We're fellow sinners. To weep over the demise of those who reject Jesus. That's what Jesus was doing. Weeping over the very people he had come to die for, but who rejected him. He knew who he was and what he was there for. He knew he was the fulfillment of that prophecy... And he knew that he was riding in lowly pomp to die in Jerusalem. He knew who he was. He knew what his mission was. He knew he was the son of the father. He knew heaven was his home. He knew we were his mission. In the face of that, it's as if he could say, bring it on. He never flinched. And what did he say? What an extreme response to the criticism of these fellows, in effect, I would imagine, shouting at him to keep his disciples from saying the things they were saying. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Well, if they're all shouting and praising And you've got that kind of mealy, like a a crowd scene. They didn't come up to him and whisper in his ear. They had to shout over the crowd, stop this. Stop your people saying this. I mean, if you enter into it, they had to shout over the crowd to tell Jesus to stop them saying what they were saying. And the crowd would have heard it. They didn't stop and Jesus didn't stop them. In fact, the words of Jesus are powerful because he says to them, if I were to shut them up, the very rocks themselves would cry out. He, the Lord, knew who he was. He knew his mission. He knew he was worthy of the praise. He knew that was a Holy Spirit, God-inspired praise, that it was a prophetic fulfillment. He knew all that. And he said, if I shut this down right now, these rocks, and believe me, they have rocks in Jerusalem. It's Stonyville. I was going to say Quarryville. There's stone everywhere. Rocks upon rocks upon rocks. Can you imagine the praise that would have come from all the rocks? Now Jesus is using that as an analogy. analogy. If I shut them up, the rocks would sing out. What's the analogy? I'm due that praise. If you won't give it, the rocks will sing it. If you won't do it, the rocks will do it. It's real. Jesus knew who he was and that he was worthy of that praise. So now as we enter ourselves, we've seen our face in the face of the crowd and in particular the Pharisees. And we've seen the face of Jesus looking at us, wanting to gather us. God, a great heart and longing for each one of you. Each one of you. He weeps over whatever area of your life you're rejecting him in. He's saddened by the paucity of your praise or your response to him. But it's not about him, it's about you. Because you and I, when we fall short as we do, are the losers. Let me ask you to do this. It struck me this morning as we prayed those prayers that we prayed for, and this will be the last Sunday that we'll pray them now for another year, that litany of penitence, take your service sheet home with you. Every one of those prayers is an admission to God that we are hypocrites. It's us. So eager to get, so reluctant to give. You go down every prayer So discontented with small tasks, so unworthy for great ones. It's us. Pray that prayer. Say, Lord, forgive me. Let's bow our heads and pray together now. Lord Jesus, we don't like what we see in ourselves, but thank you that we love what we see in you. We do confess and repent of what we see in ourselves. But we honor and love and adore what we see in you. So in these moments of quiet, as if we withdraw from that crowded entrance to the city, go into a little quiet back alley and spend this moment with you. To say, Lord, forgive me. My critical spirit. My obsession with the small details and my missing the big ones. My missing you, Lord. Full of everything else but you. And inasmuch as you draw me out, draw me back to you. And confront me with my limitations and shortcomings. Thank you, Lord, that you weep, that you want to gather, shelter me, hold me close. Thank you for your great mercy, your great forgiveness, and your amazing grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.